Hello everyone, welcome to the latest episode of the Nordic Football Podcast. I'm Steve Wiss, I'm joined as ever by Jonathan Fadugba and uh, I'll tell you what, the games really are uh, racking up thick and fast in both Norway and Sweden. We've had I think seven rounds up there in, in Sweden now, so uh, kind of a crazy period of, of matches, but we, just how we like it, isn't it Jonathan? Uh, I hope you're keeping well my friend. Hi Steve, hi everybody. I'm doing well, thank you. And as you say, it's been a busy, busy week. We've had two rounds, uh, so plenty to get our teeth into and keep us busy. And we've also got a special guest interview on this uh, on this episode, haven't we, Steve? Which you're going to tell us about in a minute. Um, but yeah, we're going to start in Sweden today, aren't we? But yeah, no, I'm doing I'm doing good, thank you. And I hope listeners, you're doing well as well. Excellent. Yeah, I'm doing quite well, thanks. Uh, yeah, this episode, we're just going to kind of brush on a few really key points over in, in Sweden and in Norway. In the second half of the episode, we've got a special uh, exclusive interview with uh, football coach Andrea Loberto, who uh, has uh, coached uh, numerous uh, different uh, teams up there in Scandinavia, also over in England. So and it's a fascinating uh, insight into uh, coaching, tactics, philosophies, everything. So uh uh, well worth uh, sticking around for, but uh, yeah, we are going to start uh, matters off in uh, in Sweden uh, this particular week. And as I say, we're now, you know, we're getting into the crooks of the season. Actually, matches played seven, uh, mostly seven. I think there's a couple of teams still on six games. But um, I, I think I look at the league table and I still see down there the bottom hacken. Uh, most people were predicting to have a great year. A majority of pundits saying second or third in the table, uh, including yourself. Hasn't worked out so far. The only team without a victory, say three points on the board. Um, I mean, they have drawn three of the last four, but there's a lot of interest in this team, Jonathan, right now. I know the manager has, has, let, has left the club or he's leaving the club. I think you can tell us more about that very soon, but we've got some interesting listener questions um, about uh, Hacken. We've got Riley here. Um, that Riley picked three, four, five. How long do you think Hacken will occupy last place for in the Asvenskan table? Some difficult fixtures ahead. They're still getting respect from the betting odds uh, in their previous matches, uh, which he kind of it sounds like he's finding that quite confusing. The Estonian Football Podcast, thank you very much for your question. Based on the first seven games, how do you feel about your predictions? What would you change? I guess he's kind of implying maybe Hacken here. Um, he said he's loving Hamby this season, but Hacken can get in the bin. And uh, Nath, at Nath uh, Hill uh, 29, Anyone anyone else hate Hacken as much as me? Now, whether he's an IFK or I don't know. Whether he, they just kind of pissed him off. A lot of things said about Hacken, Jonathan. So fire away with what you what you your take on events is. Yeah, it's been uh, the talk of the town at the moment, isn't it? Bickle Hacken, you know, heavily tipped to do well this season, and and uh, you know, as you said there, you look at the table. There's only one team in the league who hasn't won a game this season. It's Bickle Hacken. There's only one team who's bottom of the league, and that's Birko Hacken. And there's only one team who's, you know, leaking goals for fun, really. And uh, again, that's Birko Hacken. You know, they're in, a, they're in terrible form. Um, yeah, the last week has not been good for them either. Obviously, the, off the back of the derby uh, just over a week ago, um, you know, going down to a sort of last-minute penalty, they could have won that game. And then, you know, last-minute stoppage time penalty stopped them winning that derby. That would have got them some momentum. Then they've had the terrible result against Orebro, which will come into or come on to in a minute. I mean, that game deserves some a few minutes in itself. And then, um, and then of course this week, you know, this this round just gone. They've just drawn with uh, drawn with Malby, so they failed to, you know, get the monkey off their back and get get their first win. So they 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 continue to be rock bottom of the of the table. 
there's been some news this week. Um, big news, really. Big, the first managerial casualty, or well, I don't know if you can call it a casualty, really, but the first managerial departure has been announced. Their manager, Andreas Alm, it was announced over the weekend. He will be leaving the club on June the 1st. Uh, so he will be going to the Danish club Odense. Um, it's reported that there's been a bit of a fee paid to, you know, hire, hire Alm, uh, who's, you know, all in all, I guess we can do the kind of um, post-mortem on his career there when the time comes. They've still got like, the cup final to come. So, you know, we, we can probably look back on it then, maybe when, when he does officially leave. He, he's not leaving now. He wasn't charged for the game uh, against Miyabi to, today. And, of course, he'll be in charge until the end of um, this this sort of uh, period of time before the Euro starts. And then there's an Svenskan break, obviously. And that's when he'll depart his position. I think there's two more rounds before the Euros. So, yeah, they announced... Um, the club said, you know, in an official statement, uh, well, the sports director said, we've had some of the best club's best years with Andreas Alm as head coach. Everything has gone very quickly, but there's now an opportunity where we can find a solution that will be good for both of us. Uh, both for Andreas and also for Odense, uh, he said. So, um, you know, he's implied that there's a fee. He's implied that, uh, you know, um, things are kind of naturally coming into an end there. And, yeah, I can understand why. I can understand why a few people are saying get in the bin because if you if you if you trying to predict their games, it's, it's been terrible because obviously everyone expected them to do well. If you're looking at it from a fantasy point of view, probably you're not going to be too happy because they're, they're they're leaking goals. They're not scoring that many. A lot of their players have flattered to deceive. I think this season as well. They're not really. You know, they scored seven goals, which it, which isn't great. It's not the lowest in the league, but it's not nothing special. Um, people would expect them to score more than that. And some of their players that we've even I've tipped on this podcast to have a good season. They, they've not started the season well at all. I mean, I think of Leo Bengtsson. He's in my tent to watch. He's just not got going really this season. He's had one or two injuries. Not really been great. You know, you look at Tobias Heinz, who, who a lot of people thought would do really well. Again, he's not quite got into his rhythm yet. Um, so Jeremy F has only just started scoring. But again, he, he's been missing chances and things like that. So it's, uh, yeah, it's not the greatest of times for Beko Aken. No, it's really not um, great times for them. It's interesting that there's going to be a fee paid um, to the club for, for by Odense there. I think, based on the start of the season, I would be uh, trying to pay them to take him off my take him off the hands of Hecken uh, at the moment because it doesn't seem right. But really, of course, he's staying around because of that Swedish Cup final, isn't he? That's the big, big fixture for Hecken. I don't know quite how much. Maybe it's been in the back of the minds of players. I'm not sure. But one thing I noticed, Jonathan, is uh, no clean sheet yet. In, in seven games and uh, the, the first rematch they lost in all four games after that they actually scored the first goal which is well it's the hard part of football isn't it scoring goals but they haven't been able to manage to hold on to any of those leads including a 2-0 lead which they lost 3-2 against Urubro so it's got to be you said actually in the pre-season podcast God, maybe the, the soft point of the team could be defence they don't seem to have any sort of uh, bite about them at the back at the moment. That's a big problem. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I mean, you mentioned there that they should be paying him. I mean, in fairness to Alm, you know, he has he has been pretty successful there. Um, you know, he has got them to, to you know, succeed, really. You know, they, they did finish in a, in, a, in a good position last season, of course. Uh, they have been, been in, in, you know, they have been progressing year on year, really, with him at the helm. So I think that I know, I know you're probably a bit telling in cheek there. Um, but to be fair to him, I do think that he, he's he's probably on balance. If he goes with the cup as well, winning the cup, if he does win the cup, then 
that'll be he'll be considered a successful manager probably all all things considered um but i know what you mean in terms of obviously the timing you there's rumors that he was maybe his job was under threat so maybe hacking have saved themselves having to actually pay money to sack him and, and they're actually gonna get a bit of money in their coffers so maybe they're from that point of view they might be secretly not too disappointed um you know last season they finished third you know so Hacken aren't really generally expected to be finishing a top three in Osvenskan, you know, in terms of the size of the club and the, the, the you know, their status in the division. But it's just been gradual success over many years. They've been very well run. There has been a bit of upheaval this season, obviously, with the sporting director leaving, who we had on our podcast, Sonny Carlson. Um, I know he's working behind the scenes, but, you know, his official title, he's gone. Um, and, of course, you know, there's been player turnover as well. They've lost some players and, and you know, Dallow Hurindus is a key player for them. He's been injured this season, so so we they, they are missing probably you could argue their best player because he you know he was in our old fence scan uh, team of the season last season, so that just sums up how good he is. And obviously, you know, I'm probably I think now I'm missing him a little bit in the final third at this moment in time. Uh, I did a bit of digging, Steve, and you know, so I was going to run through a few sort of statistics and things like that just to look take a bit of a deeper dive on on hacking for for a couple of the people who have asked those questions. Uh, and thanks a lot, everyone who has asked the questions, by the way. Um, so we're looking at, you know, the key here, as you said, is the defence has got a lot worse. You know, the expected goals against last season uh, was the third best in Ospenskan. Um, it was 36.8 against. They conceded 29 goals. And, um, you know, that, that was third in the table. This season already, they, they're well behind. Like, this is according to Wisecout, by the way, the Wisecout data. You know, their expected goals against the moment is um, 9.03. They've conceded 10. Uh, and that's 10th in, in the league. So... You know they really they've really dropped uh, from that point of view. When you look when we look at their possession, it's about the same. You know they're averaging fifty one percent at the moment. They were averaged last season fifty one point six percent. So they are kind of getting in you know similar. They're having a similar amount of the ball as they did last season. So in terms of the style of play, we haven't really seen too much change. It's still a four two sort of three one uh, formation. Um, their expected goals this season is is, is ten point one five. It's quite low um for for the division well not quite low sorry um you know it's not too bad basically it's sort of top six but it's not not ideal is it but but their goal scored is seven so there's a massive difference there in terms of you know the amount of goals they've been expected to score and the amount of goals they're actually scoring they are missing chances you know you look at um if we do a comparison you know 10.16 expected goals is elfborg they scored 10 goals so they're bang on on track hacking away below that you know look at um i mean you don't want to look at Miao because they've got 10.74 expected goals and four goals scored. So that's just a little, uh, in, in terms of today's game, they drew one all. But, you know, other teams, you know, for example, you've got Hammerby 10.7 XG and they've scored 13 goals. So you can see the clear difference there between them and, say, Hacken um, from that point of view. You know, Hacken aren't just, they're just not putting the ball in the back of the net. They are having a similar amount of possession as they did before, um, but they are a lot more leaky. From my point of view, Steve, you know, I mentioned it in pre-season, my, my worry about them was defensively. And I think that is the area that they're, they're, they're sort of lacking. They have got a lot of new players as well, trying to bed in and settle down. You know, I'm excited about um, the likes of Benny, Benny Traore. I'm excited about the likes of um, Tobias Heinz, but they, they they look like they're kind of bedding into the league at this moment in time. They're not really performing. Um, so that's one to watch. Jeremy F, as I said, he's not not really firing. He's, he's missed some chances. So at this moment in time, yeah, the statistics don't really weigh in their favour. I think, I think they... I was actually thinking about the EF Core game earlier, and obviously we'll talk maybe about Marek Hamzik. He scored his first goal for EF Core, and it was an incredible strike. And I was sort of, when I was looking at that goal, I was thinking to myself, Hacken at the moment, I think they kind of lack an experienced player. I think they're a bit, I think they're a bit of a young side. 
And I think that they're the sort of team, that if I was looking at them for the window coming, I feel like they could do with maybe some bit more experience in, in, in the final third, maybe in, maybe a bit more leadership. I know they have got some, you know, experienced players in the team, like, you know, um, Olsen, for example, players like that. But I just think they they look a bit timid at the moment. They look a bit kind of really, really they have, like the head's gone psychologically and they need some big, big mentalities to kind of pull them out of this rut because they really are in a rut at this moment in time. And, um, you know, you don't want this run to go on too much longer because at the end of the day, if it carries on, you know, then they are going to be in trouble in terms of even trying to get back into maybe European positions and things like that for next season. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a strange situation. They, they really have started poorly and they do have work to do. Um, just to finalise, I mean, yeah, the, the, the favourite for the job at the moment is uh, Jens Gustafsson. He was a, the North Shopping manager. I think he's a good manager, so I think that would be quite a good, good pick-up if they get him. And it will be a popular job. There will, I'm sure there'll be a lot of applications because they're a good club. So, um, yeah, it's a crazy start for Hacken so far this season. Yes, I watched uh, Mialbi against uh, um, Hacken, um, and really there wasn't much going on in the game until Yeremiev uh, scored for Hacken. But after that, I was absolutely stunned how weak they looked. It's like they were just scared shitless. They took the lead and they became really this timid creature, and, and Mialbi kind of pounced on it. And Mialbi, really, if they were kind of any good at finishing, they would have probably took the lead 2-1, to be honest. They were massively struggling against set pieces. Um, and then, you know, towards the end, they were they were dangerous on the counter-attack, Hecken, but it's like they lacked belief. They were kind of panicking too much and trying too hard to make things happen. And it happens, doesn't it, when you're down there? And, I mean, I, I still can't go, but, I mean, I know we want to move on from Hecken here, but how on earth did they lose against Uruguay? I was on the golf course that particular night, and I kept seeing these messages from you about, how a crazy situation was developing um, against Urubro. They, they were tuned up and they lost 3-2 at home. I mean, how on earth did that happen? Yeah, good question. I'm still not quite sure myself that game. That was one, that was, it's probably the best game I've seen this season so far. It was an unbelievable match. Um, before I get into it, I just want to say in terms of Hacken, Mialbi, the game just played today, you know, not sure if any you know our listeners uh, if you listen to us on patreon patreon.com slash nordic football podcast but we do we do do previews of the weekend's games coming up and we do pick our sort of um our tips for the week and i did say in that preview show that you know Mialbi, i think will be just physically they'll give hacken a real strong game and and i think that's where i didn't really think hacken would have much of a chance in terms of getting three points and i was looking at the stats earlier from the game and you know me i'll be putting 19 tackles in this game to, to hacken six uh, they had 15 interceptions to Hacken's one. Um, although they lost, you know, Hacken lost possession 203 times in this match. And you kind of got a feeling that, uh, you know, Mialbi made 19 fouls, by the way, as well. So you, you can see kind of, as you mentioned there, you just alluded to it, that the physicality of Mialbi just, uh, it's, it's, it's tough for a team like Hacken in this current form to go and sort of out-battle a team like Mialbi. So I, I wasn't surprised at that result. The Audible game was just uh, just ridiculous, to be honest. I, I couldn't believe what I was, what I was watching. Um, they, they were totally in control of the match. It looked to me as if they were going to win it easily. Um, I think I even tweeted, I think this game could end 5 0 if, if they can take their chances. Um, they were creating chance after chance at 2 0. They looked confident. And, you know, you mentioned psychologically and that, that kind of thing. And as soon as they conceded the first goal, it was panic stations. You know, they just went into, they just looked like rabbit in headlights. Um, it was a bit controversial because uh, Heinz, I think it was, was fouled in the build up and it. It wasn't given. I think in the age of VAR, actually, that would have been ruled potentially ruled out. Um, 
Orem will go up the other end from that and, and he's on the floor and they score. And then it's 2-1 and then they turned it around with, you know, three really, really good goals, to be honest, for Orem. And of course, at that time, Orem were one of the bottom teams in the league and then won a game. That was their first win. So, um, yeah, it's a... Uh, sorry, it was a second win, sorry. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a crazy turnaround. It really, really was. Um, Hacken just completely bottled it. That's the bottom line, really. Uh, I've, I've never seen a team go from just so comfortable to, to losing it in, in such a short space of time. And really, that, that kind of sums up their season so far. You know, it's just that kind of, you know, in 18, in 18 minutes, you know, they've gone from 2-0 up to 3-2 down. Uh, there was two goals in two minutes towards the end. Martinson and Hummer, you know, 82nd and 84th minute. Just an unbelievable turnaround, Steve. From a game's point of view, it was just such a great, great spectacle to watch. Um, but from Hacken's point of view, it was, it was a nightmare. Um, there's been a few comments in the, you know, from the players and the media and that kind of thing this week. One comment said, you know, it's a bit stressful for us that we can't seem to. Uh, Jeremy, I've said this by the way. He said, it's a bit stressful that we keep taking the leading games and then we can't hold on. Maybe it's psychological. We maybe do not really know how to handle these situations, and that is not fun. Um, we have said the same thing after every match, and nothing happens. So maybe we have to look somewhere else. So, you know, a bit of a bit of a sort of despondent tone there from Jeremy. Who I'm, I've, I said it in one of the early shows of this season. I need more leadership from him, really, and um, you know, uh, he needs to stand up and be counted. Which, in fairness to him, he has scored a few goals in, in recent weeks, and you know, his 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 uh, shooting boots are back on. But yeah, it's just. Um, it's not a great place to be at this moment in time. And whoever is going to get the new manager's job is going to have a, a tough task just to sort of change the mentality and change the the, the, the the dynamics of the squad at this moment in time. You know, we are twenty more than 20% into the season now. We're nearly a quarter of the way in. You know, you don't want to end up in a relegation battle, do you? I know there are only a few, few wins away from getting well clear of it, but football's a funny game and you can get sucked in quite easily if you're an experienced squad with under, underperforming players. So, uh, yeah, watch this space. But uh, big games coming up for Hacken, um, especially in the last two rounds and in the cup final. Um, you know, let's see if Axel, uh, let's see if An Andreas Am can go out with uh, a bit of a bang. So, a couple of other questions from the listeners here. Nordic Footy, thank you very much for a question here. And I, I actually noticed this when I looked at the results of this round. The Alcerenskan season is looking like it's going to be very open and free scoring so far. Is it too early to start changing our minds on predictions? I know it's been quite a lot of goals, certainly in the last couple of rounds anyway, Jonathan. Uh, what would you say to that question? Um, great question. And, and, of course, get your questions in on Twitter at Nordic Footpod. So, yeah, I really appreciate the question. From my point of view, is it too early to change my mind on predictions? With Hacken, clearly, yes, because I put it in second. I think that's going to be, already it looks a tough ask, but I still think they'll eventually sort things out and get to, you know, get back to some sort of form. But they're going to have to go on a really, really good run now just to get anywhere near it. Um, so, you know, they're already 13 points behind the leaders now. They're already, you know, 11 points behind second. So that's a big gap to, to climb back off teams like Jurgen and Mount already. Um, in terms of the other predictions, there's nothing really too much that I kind of want to change. Uh, things are going pretty much maybe as I expected. I think Ossesons are going to struggle this season. You know, the more I see of them, you know, although I did say they've got a bit of togetherness about them and, and sort of decent coaching and things like that, I, you know, they are looking like they're in for a slog. Um, where where they're going to pick up wins is going to be a big challenge. 
but but all in all, maybe AI care predicted slightly a little bit too low. Maybe they they're looking okay, but you know they've got goalkeeper problems. They've got a few issues they need to sort out. I, I read that they've taken out a bank loan to be able to maybe go into the transfer market for a striker. So um, you know they're they're still tweaking. You know they could maybe have a little fall. They're they're, they're, they're third at the moment. Um, your garden look potentially like they could challenge Malmo. You know they're your garden top of the league at the moment and good goal difference. You know only six goals conceded. They look very strong defensively and going. F- you know, going forward. So, you know, maybe diff to win a title, you could could argue, but I still think Malmo will, will probably win the league. So no, I'm, all in all, I'm 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 pretty comfortable with my my predictions. I'd say the only one I'm I'm a bit surprised about maybe is how I'm sad are doing slightly better than maybe I expected. Um but no, all in all things are kind of going as as, as really as I expected. Hammerby still leak goals for fun. Their expected goals against is a joke. You know, they they score a lot but they concede too many. Um, that will never change, it seems, under this manager. So, yeah, I think the thing I would say about the season so far is it's been really open, as, as you've said there. It's really enjoyable. A lot of the games you can't predict. Um, you know, Varberg Norshopping was a great example to, uh, today. You know, Varberg beating Norshopping, nobody would have probably thought about that, that a week ago could happen. Um, and really, Varberg gave them a bit of a pounding as well, by the way. It wasn't it wasn't like a fluke result or something. Um, it could have been 4-0 at half-time easily. So, you know... It's quite open teams, you know, I think the tactical flexibility that we've spoken about on a previous episode, teams are playing in different styles, different formations, we're seeing different think ways of thinking, we're seeing sort of players stepping up. Uh, so, no, I've, I've enjoyed the season so far, I think it's been really, really refreshing. And um, I know it's only eight fans in the stands, but just that little bit extra in terms of fans has has made a small difference in my opinion, even even if it's very small. So, yeah, we're, we're sort of looking okay and the season looks quite sort of, well balanced and not too easy to predict so yeah I'm, I'm really enjoying the season so far I've noticed and I don't actually have any uh, statistics for this but I've noticed quite a lot of comebacks in the Arsvenskin this season it's like the first goal if you get even one or two goals ahead it doesn't mean you're actually going to win the game and even in matches where someone would say three up it's I've seen a few games actually end something like three two so is there something about teams having more belief about coming back or it's a league where, as I say, it just seems like you're not guaranteed to win if you do get on top. Yeah, I think in terms of goal times, I've read a stat that says sort of um, 31 goals so far. I think that's 22% in terms of the league has been scored in the last 15 minutes, which is the highest percentage of any sort of period of time in the, in the game. So there's clearly kind of like goals are changing games late on. Um, there's clearly a trend of kind of uh, the early parts of games are a bit more, you know, less goal scoring. And then as the game goes on, the chances of scoring goals increases. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely, you know, second half goals are also higher. 57% of goals are scored in the second half at this moment in time. 78 goals have been scored in the second half compared to 58 in the first half. Um, so I mentioned it on the on the, um, on the the Patreon pod. You know, if you're looking for in-play, you know, I, I, get, I would say get to half time and assess things. Um, I think there's some value in sort of going over 1.5, over 2.5 at half time. Some of these games are kind of 1-0 or 0-0 and then suddenly they burst into life second half. So I think there is some value there for people who may be thinking about it from that point of view. You know, if you're over 18 and that's that's your, uh, your, what you fancy. Um, but no, I think it's just because we've got quite a well-matched league here, Steve. I don't think there's any real, real, real standout teams in terms of way, way better than anyone else. Like maybe say Buda Glimpse in, in Norway. Um You've got teams like Jurgen who are very solid teams, but they can still lose. They've lost one game, obviously, against Degafors, no one expected. 
Um, Malmo may be looking a little bit more vulnerable than they did last season, but they're still strong. Um, and what I like about the league this season so far, Steve, is the teams lower down the league, they're, they're not they're not there to just defend. It's not like maybe in the Premier League, for example, where you've got teams that were just happy to take a point and don't really go for it. Teams are really going for it, no matter where they are in the table. And that's why you've got hack and bottom of the league, because I'd say maybe Orebro aside, every other team, you know, Orebro have only scored four goals and Mialbi as well, four goals, but Mialbi still give it a go, but they're just more of a physical, robust side. As I mentioned, their XG is still quite high. Um, but every other team really, Steve, tries to go for it, no matter where they are. You know, Degaforce playing at 3-4-3, three, three, they, they go for games, they, they try and attack. Helmstead, when they're at home, you know, they, they're no spring, you know, they're no silent lambs kind of thing. They, they, they've gone for it and they've got wins. Um, beating Elfsborg away today, you know, I, I, no, I never would have seen that coming, for example. Um, you've got Kalmar, you know, Kalmar are sort of, they're not scoring many, they, they need a striker, but, you know, they're trying to play this open possession-based style. I mean, I was looking at the stats earlier today, Steve, I couldn't believe what I'm seeing with Kalmar's uh, possession. You yeah, know, I saw that. 50% against Malmo, wasn't it? Yeah, 55% possession, 55.8%. That's like fourth best in the league, which, um, you know, any Kalmar fan listening to this will be will be dancing with joy because that, that that's not Kalmar over the last four years in terms of having, having a lot of the ball. So every team really is trying to do something. And um, from my point of view, that's just made it hard to predict and, and, and a very exciting league. All right, so last question for you here. And we, I feel like we get one of these every week about this particular side. It's from Scooby. Um, that's Scooby, man. Thank you very much for this question. Ostersons, what what do you expect from him this season and in the future? Yeah, good question. Thank you, Scooby. Um, there's also one question which I'll touch on as well. From, uh, I'm going to answer that one first. It's from a guy called Joe Blundell. I don't know if you saw that one as well, Steve. He said, as a Liverpool fan, what teams would you recommend following in both Allsvenskan and Elite Serien? So that was an interesting question, which I may, may touch on, um, or maybe may I, maybe I'll leave it to you to answer the Elite Serien bit of it. But uh, in terms of Scooby, I think Ostersons, what you can expect from this season is, is anything above relegation is, is, a, is a success for them. Uh, they have a transfer ban, of course, till 2022, so they can't sign any players, um, no, no matter what happens. So, you know, they, they also have to try and avoid selling players. Blair Turgos had a lot of interest. So, you know, I've said it before. If it's, it's Blair or Bust, I think if he if he leaves, if he's, if they sell him, he, they'll go down. In my opinion, because he's the only one who really looks like getting goals. Um, I don't trust sort of you know um, Juno Baptiste, for example. I don't really trust Drew Sellers to, to get goals to, to get you um, out of a relegation battle in Osvenskan. I, I don't think they've shown enough in in the sort of year or you know eighteen months or two years they've been there. So I think Blair Turgot is absolutely huge for them. Uh, they're currently second bottom. They made a, a reasonable start to the season, obviously. They they, they beat, uh, not just beat, they battered Oribro 5-0. Um, they got a couple of draws, drew at Malmo. But since then, they've lost four straight, and that's when you start to really worry. Um, their manager's been very positive. He, he said today that, you know, we just have to keep going and continue. And I'm pretty sure he said that last week as well. I thought it was like Groundhog Day when I was reading his comments. <laughs> very sort of sanguine and relaxed about things. Didn't didn't Doesn't seem that bothered at all. Um, to be fair to them, they have had tough games, your garden away, AIK at home. Um, I think Mialbi is a tough place to go. They lost there as well, 1 0. And it was, um, I think that was a, quite a bad loss for them, really, because that, that's the sort of game. I think the worst thing for them was 90th minute against Varberg losing at home, because that's the sort of team they need to be beating, really. And I think that was a disaster to, to, to lose to lose a like, 90th minute goal when they were 1 0 up already, Elstersons. I think when we look back on the season, we could be looking at that. That was maybe the day they went down. I know it's a bit early, but. You know, Varberg are sort of down there, um, you know, so 
I think they're direct rivals in terms of going down. So that, that could really be decisive. Um, they don't have much creativity, really. They have that 5-3-2 shape. Um, and, they, and they're going to be quite defensive and just try and eke out points. Eight goals scored, eight goals conceded. So, yeah, I think we can expect them to to bravely battle as much as they can to fight, fight relegation. And I think what we can expect in the future, if they go down, they're in, they're in massive, massive trouble because they've had financial, financial issues, they've had they've had problems. And, um, you know, if they can't sign any players till till next season, then you know, it's worrying for them. But, uh you know, enjoy them while you can, because you know this might be their last season or Spencer for quite a while if they if they manage if they can't manage to, to stay up. Uh, and just in terms of Joe's question, um, yeah, I mean there was an answer actually that someone gave where he said that another Joe, I think. So uh, he said that uh, he's compared them to Liverpool AF Corps, which is a, an, a, an interesting comparison. Um, one that you could maybe argue is potentially accurate. He's mentioned Glenn Hussein, who's obviously played for Liverpool and is like an EF Corps legend. Obviously, we've interviewed his son Tobias Hussein on on the podcast. Um, saying you know, play for Liverpool. Um, I think it was the 80s, and uh, yeah, so if I was saying what, what team would I recommend you following, if you, it depends on if you want to support a team like Liverpool, I suppose. Um, if it's if you want a sort of a big club who, who wins a lot of things traditionally, historically, then yeah, of course, are probably a good side to follow. Um, and they've also got that European success as well in the past, so yeah, maybe maybe of course, would be a good one. Interesting one. Um, interesting answer there. Going back to Ostersunds, uh, I agree with you. They've had a tough uh, fixture list. I look at that and I'm thinking there's not really too many games that we can expect them to get that many points out of. So, yeah, obviously the Varberg loss was, was bad, but they're not getting smashed, are they? And it's not. I mean, they've only lost one match by more than one goal. So, um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm still going to be optimistic about Ostersunds as well. Still, I've still got a gut feeling you might be right about them, actually, in your season preview that they can just hang on by the skin of the teeth and um as for joe's question uh the question is uh, as a liverpool fan which team would you recommend following in the aspense elite serian i'm just trying to think of the team in the elite serian as the most whiniest of fans <laughs> the most uh moaning of fans um <laughs> i jest well sort of <laughs> brand maybe i feel like there's, there's there's quite a lot of brand fans who who are Liverpool fans. I think there's a connection between the two clubs as well in a, in a similar sort of way. Um, but yeah, I think brand feels quite right, actually, for, for, for Liverpool fans, I would say. Well, you've done well, you've done well there to get us another one unfollow, Steve. Congratulations as a Leeds fan. Uh, typically typically upfront as ever. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, from my point of view, I, I, quite like, I quite like that comment, but uh, I am a bit biased myself. But um, to be honest, when I think of just my own personal point of view, when I think of Allsvenskan, um, I often think that you have quite like Manchester United, to be honest. You know, both both have had rough times of the last sort of three, four years in terms of, you know, not really been that successful. Um, and obviously they're traditionally big, big, uh, big boys in the, the league and they've got that sort of history and that, you know, they are considered a big club. I often, I kind of feel AIK give me Liverpool vibes, to be honest. So, um I'd lean towards saying AIK if it was my own personal opinion, but I can see the case for EF Core as well, to be honest. So maybe flip a coin or maybe ask, uh, maybe we can ask our followers on Twitter themselves. But yeah, I personally see EF Core as a bit more like Manchester United. Maybe it's because they played each other in the 90s. And I remember that those games that they played in Europe uh, back in the day. Um, so it could be that. But um, yeah, I tend to think of Liverpool as being more of an AIK myself. Yeah, I can be a bit of a shit stirrer sometimes, can't I, Jonathan? 
Um, <laughs> I suppose we all always have fans, Steve, which is why we all, all fans. All, 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 there's all every club has fans that fucking are whining at it, so I'm kind of a bit tongue in cheek there. But I do, joking aside, I think there is uh, quite a lot of brand fans who support Liverpool. They're, they're both uh, red colours. They've both got, you know, cities by the uh, the coast, um, a bit of a working class sort of background. And uh, like I say, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, yeah, brand haven't had as much success as Liverpool have in, in the past, but they, they've won leagues with a lot of passion there. And uh, I think that's a, a good sort of... Uh, good sort of link there between Liverpool and Brown, I would say. I can't really think of anyone else particularly um, from there. It just, it just feels about right to me. Great stuff. I think, um, I don't know if we have any time for any more questions, Steve, or should we wrap up part one? Because we do have an interview coming up, don't we? Yes, we're going to move on to the elitarian section now. Um, so, uh, yeah, we'll, we will uh, move the uh, the boat forward, as you might say. All right, well, yeah, let's move on to, to Norway then before we get into our into our big interview. Um, very, quite briefly, because, you know, we are pushing push time on this episode, uh, so we will cover Norway in more detail in, in weeks to come. But we do have a lot of questions this week, Steve, from, from listeners. We've got one from FPL Oakwell who says, has anything stood out from the sides playing their first games in Elitis Serien? Well, we have covered, obviously, the first couple of rounds uh, on previous shows, but uh, in this most recent run of games, Steve, anyone caught your eye? Has there been anything particularly from this past sort of week's results that have you know, uh, raised an eyebrow? Yeah, thanks for the question, FPL Oakwell. Actually, thanks for uh, You sent quite a lot of questions in and often some uh, very interesting ones. So uh, it's great that uh, the interaction there. And uh, I think uh, you just asked there, playing their first games. I, I'm actually going to talk about uh, some teams that uh, literally were, was their first fixtures and... Uh, it definitely stood out to me. Sanderfield, Meandal, and it ended 3 0 Meandal, and Sanderfield looked really poor. It really, I know it's the first game, but they already looked like relegation fodder to me. Um, I'm kind of already, I mean, I said they were going to finish rock bottom, didn't I, in the season preview? And I saw nothing there to suggest otherwise. They look, they look still really poor. That, that definitely stood out with me. And there was the 16th of May fix, I must say, there were quite a few surprise results. And you know what? Every year this round does me in. I think back probably the last 10 years and I've been doing betting predictions and everything for 16th of May, right? It's usually around about round number seven or eight in a year. And strange things happen on this day in Norway, Jonathan. It's the day before the Constitution Day. Um, and it's, I've always put it down to like full houses, uh, teams really up for it and things like that. That's not the case now. Only a certain amount of fans are in. It's only early in the season but still the strange results happened it's, it's like the equivalent of the boxing day fixtures in england and I, I, some inexplicable stuff results happens usually though you know results can be explained but i certainly couldn't really explain what happened at strom's godset lillistrom it ended 3-1 to godset and um this one completely flummoxed me to be honest because they totally deserved the win they could have probably had more goals and um I, as I say, it's, it's the one that it's left me baffled. It's left me scratching my head over the last two or three days as to what on earth actually happened here in, in Godset because uh, I would never have seen this coming in a million years. Great stuff, and yeah, I'm going to move. I'm going to move it along because we we do have quite a few questions for you. Um, so I want to ask you another one, uh, Steve, quickly. Um, should Brand be panicking? Ten goals conceded in three games, only one scored, and that's from Ben Jack ninety four at Ben Jack ninety four. Uh, thank you, Ben Jay, for your question. Yes, 
they in simple terms they definitely should be panicking because although they've had a tough fixture list they've looked uh bloody awful defensively um they're not offering much going forward either one goal scored dioda bamba did get a goal in the first game of the season but once again he's missing chances jonathan he's missed a couple of one-on-ones they need him to step up but defense worries me they just can they're leaking too many chances and goals and yeah tough fixture list but yeah you've got to dig in sometimes when you're the underdog and you know christensen didn't go to volarenga and just said oh we're going to roll over and get out get our tummy tickled again and uh and roll over and get a defeat did they they they, they grafted and, and got a result and i think brand need to do a little bit of that they've got reasonable away on thursday night and i want to see something from them you know even if they lose i want to see some more fights a bit more maybe tactical direction and um you know actually giving it a, a giving it a go in terms of just trying to grind something out yeah and we've also got the sort of interesting quirk of uh having a team in Brown who have played three games being below teams in the league who have played zero games. So, uh, I'm not sure I've ever seen that before. You've got Odd and Starbeck, zero games played, and uh, Brown are way below them with three games played. So, um, you know, as you said there, Ben, minus nine goal difference as well. So it's, uh, yeah, three and three losses. Unbelievable, really, for, for Brown so far. And uh, the Liverpool of Norway are not looking good at the moment. Um, Steve, obviously, we talked about Christiansen uh, off, off camera. We talked about them giving you a bloody nose, as usual, which I have to admit I quite love. Um, although, unfortunately, that wasn't one of our predicted games on Patreon, wasn't it? I think we we, we hit uh, 60% predictions this week, then we got three out of five. Uh, we got Varberg right, didn't we? North Shopping overs. We got ARK to beat Ostersons. We got uh, Mulder as well. You had them on the handicap in, in our Patreon episode. Uh, so that's 60%. But unfortunately, two two games that didn't come through. We had Elsborg to beat Helmstad. And then we had Christensen, obviously, didn't we? We had Valeringa to kind of put them away. You were quite surprised at that, that result, weren't you? Yeah, you can't predict this one. Uh, no one could have predicted, predicted this at all. Um, you know, Christensen looks poor in the first two matches. Didn't put much of a fight up against Mulder and Budigan, really. And look, everything went their way. But I wasn't impressed with Valeringa's performance. Yeah, I think they there was a lot of things lacking. But you know, in terms of the actual, if you look at the statistics for this game, I think they had an expected goals of something like four point two five Valeringa. So even the staunchest of Lillestrøm fans probably couldn't say that they deserve nothing out of the game they should have at least drawn it but you know they had a missed penalty they had numerous big opportunities wasted the goalkeeper sean mcdermott who's actually really good for christianson this year i must say uh obviously had a huge game um but yeah valorenga they were too sloppy i think in both boxes hartenson uh, back end of last season i thought he missed some big chances at crucial times and this was the case here he missed one at nil nil yeah if it goes one nil I think Christiansen probably their heads would have dropped a bit and it's going to end two or three nil Volarenga. You gotta, you can't miss chances at key times in games. And when they fell behind, it's like there's no plan B, there's certainly no plan C. You know, it's one way or no way. And, um, you know, fair play, Christiansen, they dug in, they defended well, they blocked really well. Keeper had a fantastic game and, um, you know, they didn't give in and you know, things go your way. But, uh, this is the following his first home loss since November 2019. It's like a 17 or 18 game run. So, uh, yeah, big, big shock. 
thanks very much for your questions guys and then uh before we wrap up the the show i mean we've got one question here from matthew lowther i believe it is uh, he asks why are most elite serving teams sponsored by banks and other financial services so quite an interesting question to be honest we, we've just had that one come in so uh, i'm not entirely sure really if you have any theories behind that steve maybe it could be something to do with maybe slightly more more stringent rules on, on betting sponsorships which are generally quite predominant in 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 the uk um but yeah, maybe we'll come back to that one. Or if anyone is listening to this to this episode and has any theories, maybe yeah, please do tweet us in on Twitter at Nordic Footpod. Um, quite an interesting question there, Matthew. So thank you. A bit left field. And um, yeah, final one. I mean, I just want to make a comment, I suppose. And then if you've got any final comments yourself, Steve, in terms of uh, the, the round and, and where we are so far, Mulder top, obviously, uh, Glimp second, you know, equal on points. But yeah, the final question, uh, comment I just want to raise uh, from a listener is, Josh Butler, Josh is Butler 90. He says, uh, I thought Totland and Lassen Nielsen both had very tidy games for Tromso against Viking. So I don't know if you had any perspectives on that game. Yeah, he makes a very good point there, actually, um, with Josh Butler. Thomas Totland has come in uh, to Tromso from the Obosley game. Uh, Songdal, actually, he scored six goals last year, seven assists in 29 appearances. Um, he, he played, I think, left wing back for Songdal, uh, but he's got a very strong right foot. I think he must have played maybe inverted wing back there, but um, Tromso are using him uh, on the right-hand side, obviously with his strong right foot there, more as a conventional just right wing back, really. So uh, he's 21 year old. He's actually quite impressed me, I must say. Sometimes, like, I don't really follow the Obosley game, and sometimes these talents come through there and they, and they do really well, and they look like they've got a good lad there in, in Totland. Lassen Nielsen is one of them players he can play pretty much anywhere really he wanted to, but uh, is he experienced? I think he was injured for half of last season. That's why he only played 13 games in the Obos. But um, you know, he's a good left wing back as well. And they, they've got this 3-5-2 system going. It was actually, I think, more like 5-3-2 on, uh, on Sunday. But um, look, if you're playing that sort of system, the 3-5-2, the two most important players are the, the wide guys, aren't they? The wing backs or whatever you want to call them. And at the moment, a strong start from both, I must say. So, um, yeah, I would totally agree there. They've impressed me. And Trump's have got, really got the bit between their teeth. I don't know whether it's Buda Glimt winning the league last year. And, then you know, they're really up for it at the minute. You know, they're, they're so determined and fiery. And they, already it looks like they could be the big surprise of this campaign. That's really good. Good to hear that you guys are, are aligned. You both agree on, and some great observations there from um, from Josh Butler. So thanks a lot. And, you know, we are asking people on, on Twitter this season, you know, if you do see a game or you do see a player, like tweet us, let us know. Um, and we can always give our perspective and see if we agree with you or, you know, in Steve's case, sometimes might disagree with you or uh, or might have his tongue in cheek at your reply. So there you go. Um, no, I just say, um, can I just say about the, the question about the um, the banks and the financial services? I actually don't know the answer to that. I will be honest with you. Um, it's probably a question that's best answered from a native up there that is familiar. I mean, there's a lot of sort of rules and regs in Norway. It's different to other countries. I mean, you know, you've got off licenses, for example, separate off licenses where you buy alcohol and stuff. Like, you, you can't just go to a supermarket. I don't think you can get them like that. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to investigate exactly why Matthew. And, and, and find that out. two or three people I might ask and um, hopefully get a good answer for it. It's, it is a very interesting question. Yeah, they have that. I think it's sort of systems below get or something like that in Sweden as well, where you, you, you've got to go to certain shops to get alcohol and it's only available at certain hours of the day and things like that. And there's a, there's a cut point. But 
where you can get alcohol. So yeah, that is a sort of a Scandinavian thing, I think, to be honest. I remember that when I was when I was out there. Um, but before we wrap up this uh, this uh, this part one, I'm just going to recap the games then, just for anyone who might have missed them. Uh, so we had Sarpsborg nil, Haugesund nil, Wallerenga one, Christiansen two, Viking nil, Tromso one, Budigan two, Rosenborg two, uh, Sandefjord nil, Mjondalen three, Stromsgodset three, Lillestrøm one, and Molder four, Brand nil. A bit of a spanking there. And we do have two games coming up in this midweek round. In Norway, we've got Starbeck against Odd. Uh, finally playing their first games of the season, I think, for both of them. Uh, so that'll be interesting. And then Rosenborg Brand should be should be quite a lively game on Thursday. Um, can Brand finally get more points than teams that have zero uh, and haven't played yet? That's that will be the question. And of course, also in 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 uh, Sweden as well, we do have a couple more games coming up to the end of the Swedish sort of um, first part of the season, really, because there is a pause for the Euros. Um, but uh, yeah, we've got Degafors against Orebro uh, coming up. That's a bit of a derby, by the way, uh, which we'll review next week. And also Malmo against Elfsborg on, on Thursday. So another game there, quite a big game. Uh, and just to recap the scores in case you, you missed it, uh, Hammerby 2, Jurgarden 2, Elfsborg 2, Hamstad 3, EFK Jotterborg 2, Sirius 2. Uh, Marek Hamza got his first goal for Jokor, by the way, an absolute beauty if you've not seen it. Uh, Malmo 3, Kalmar 1. Mialby one Hecken one, which we talked about. Ostersons one, AIK two, Varberg boys two, Nor shopping one. So that is where we are at this moment in time in Norway and Sweden. We've got uh, Molder top in Norway, and we've got Jurgarden top in Sweden. So uh, that about wraps it up, I think, Steve, doesn't it, for part one? Yeah. And do you want to sort of introduce us to what's going to happen in part two? Yeah, that's that's it. Uh, that's going to be goodbye from from you in this episode now, Jonathan. And uh, the second part is going to be an interview uh, with uh, Andrea Laberto, um, football coach from the Scandinavia region, Italian football coach who's been up there. So yeah, it's quite an in-depth interview. So uh, yeah, we'll have a little bit of a break and then uh, we'll go straight into the interview. But I will say goodbye to you now, Jonathan, from, from this episode. That's me tuning out. So, yes, thanks a lot, guys. Uh, follow us on Twitter at JFFootball. If you fancy it, F-U-T-B-O-L, if you've got more questions. And we shall be back next week. Um, yeah, we may have another Patreon episode, but if we don't, then obviously go on, on patreon.com slash Podcast if you want to uh, tune in for our, our bonus content. But, yeah, I hope you're enjoying these regular shows and uh, see you soon. So enjoy this episode, uh, this interview, sorry, as I say, and, we will have some more insight from other guests as well in the coming weeks, Steve. So, uh, cheers, Steve. Take care of yourself. this edition of the Nordic Football Podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Andrea Alberto, who is a football coach who's uh, been uh, involved in many different clubs in Scandinavia and in Europe. Um, Andrea, thank you very much for uh, coming on the Nordic Football Podcast. I hope you're well. Yes, I'm very well, thank you, and thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And um, Andrea, let's first of all start off by telling us a bit about yourself. Um, you have been, like I said, been uh, quite involved in a lot of different clubs in a lot of different sort of positions down the years. So just sort of a brief history about yourself, if you don't mind. Uh, yes, um, I was born in Italy, uh, in Milano. Uh, my father's Italian, my mother's English. Um, 
moved to England when I was 13. Um, and then from there, I went to university at, uh, in Leeds. Um, then in 2005, I came to Norway and I've been here ever since, really. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's sort of an interesting journey that you've had there. I noticed that sort of back in the day, you actually had a stint at Leeds United in England, an academy coach. Uh, the incredible amount of people we actually have on the Nordic Football Podcast with a link to, to Leeds United. I mean, I'm a fan of Leeds. We've had guys like Sean Constable on who's from Leeds and a few others as well. Uh, what a place. Yes, I mean, actually, I, uh, I used to work with Sean, actually, uh, at Leeds United. <laughs> Um, so you're right. I mean, uh, Leeds, you know, I've, I've, Leeds United uh, seem to be almost like a hotbed of uh, of, of people that uh, have gone on to uh, to good things and much better things in football. I mean, if I was to mention, you got Sean Constable, uh, who's worked in Norway and Sweden. Uh, I also worked with Ian Burchnell, who's now the head coach at Notts County. Um, I, was, I was also lucky enough to work with Gary Weatherington, who I believe is the head of recruitment at Manchester City. Also, Dave Harrison, who is the head of academy recruitment at Manchester United. Um, so, at the time, uh, Leeds United was a, not only just a, a great academy for, for producing players, but it was also a very uh, uh, interesting uh, place uh, with lots of uh, competent people with different backgrounds, but uh, loved the game, studied the game, and uh, I've gone on to uh, good things in the game. Yeah, and uh, just looking at your uh, sort of CV here, you were at Leeds for a good uh, five or six years, maybe more, I don't know. And then you move out there to um, to Norway into Vålerenga, uh, and you're basically involved in the academy, uh, assistant coaches, and things like that for a, a, quite a long time at Vålerenga. What actually was the main reason that got you out into Norway to do some coaching? Um, like m like most things in life, sir. Uh, opportunities come up and sometimes it is an element of randomness, shall we call it. Um, what had happened was that a team from Norway came to uh, Leeds and did like a training camp, um, whereby I was one of the coaches that coached them. Um, then I kind of made the contact. I was invited over to Oslo to uh, have a couple of training camps, a couple of coaching sessions. Then uh, at the time, Waldringer were looking to uh, employ someone in their youth academy. Uh, my name was put forward through somebody that uh, I knew had lived in Oslo. Um, I came here, I uh, did a couple of sessions for them, talked to them, um, the link was established. Uh, I was offered a contract, the original three-year contract, uh, to come and work in the academy. Um, at the time, uh, yes, I was working at Leeds United. Um, I didn't, I wasn't married, I had no uh, family uh, connection or ties in England, so the timing was right. I took a bit of a chance, really, um, and to be honest with you, I've never looked back. It's been a, a great adventure that hasn't finished yet. Yeah, and what actually, in the first place, got you into football coaching? Because I'm right in thinking you were quite young um, getting into this sort of thing. So was it just simply a case of studying at university? You knew what you wanted to be very early in life? Or uh, did just something fall your way that kind of got you to become a coach? Um, my journey into football is a little bit less than the average journey. Um, didn't didn't have a professional career as a player. As I played semi-pro in England. Um, I actually studied economics and public policy at Leeds Beckett University, which is not the normal, so we say, course in to go to, to go into football. Um, but football was always the passion. Um, it was that that really. Uh, was the main drive in me, really. 
Um, so the coaching started off really by being a community coach at Leeds United Football Club. Um, there we were delivering coaching sessions in schools, doing uh, holiday camps, uh, football camps. From that, I then progressed to the academy. Uh, what I was there for, I think it was four or five years, worked with the uh, under nines, tens, elevens. Uh, I also had a bit of a spell when I was also working with the Leeds United Girls uh, School of Excellence. Um, and basically from there, it went on. Uh, of course, you start doing your coaching badges. Uh, you start with your, your basic one. I, I think I took my first ever coaching badge in 1996 at Norwich City because my parents lived there. Uh, not far from Norwich in East Anglia. Uh, and from there, basically, I progressed up to now having uh, the UEFA Pro license. Interesting stuff. It really is. Uh, it's fascinating to hear how uh, the many different journeys that coaches and managers actually have to get into football. And uh, yeah, Leeds uh, Beckett University, I remember I, I used to go to, to Leeds University, um, the main one. Uh, I actually studied environmental energy science, would you believe, of all things. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, it's a great area to uh, to learn. It's a real hotbed for for learning and talent, like you said before. But um, I tell you, I, I want to really talk to you in detail about something now because we always get so many questions about this um, in general. It's about this um, sort of Norwegian golden generation of talent, of, of young yes. talent, which is now coming through, um, making sort of the national team, well, potentially, hopefully, a force in the next few years. And it's not always been the case, though. This is not whole, this is certainly something that's sort of come up in the last sort of five six years maybe maybe a little bit longer but i know you spent quite a lot of time in, in academy coaching um obviously at leeds and then volarenga rosenborg and i'm sure you have great knowledge of, of the other places that you've been at i mean what, what do you think's changed in academy coaching and and, and 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 in the last sort of 10 15 years that's enabled norway to now produce this golden generation of talent compared to what it was in the past um I mean, you're right. In many ways, it's almost like it's almost like a rebirth of a new generation of players who are who are actually now going on to dominate on a, on the world stage. Uh, I mean, once upon a time in the in the Premier League, uh, it was commonplace to have quite a few Norwegians playing there. Uh, in recent years, it dried up, and now there's a lot of players coming through the system. Um, I, I can certainly pinpoint to maybe four main reasons as to why this has happened. Um, since the time I've been here, I youth development has been professionalized a lot. Uh, when I first came to Norway, it wasn't commonplace that a lot of youth academies had full-time employment. Uh, this meant naturally that a lot of coaches that wanted to get into football or make a career out of football had to go into, into the senior game, either male or female. Um, but certainly over the last uh, few years, five, six, seven years, uh, there's a lot more full-time uh, opportunities within academies. Uh, I mean, for example, Starbeck, they have uh, full-time coaches going down to the under nines, under tens. Budoglimt, um, who, who won the Elite Serie last year, um, they also have a, 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 a big and a very competent staff. They actually, I believe, have brought in a few coaches over from England to try to improve the, the, the competence level. So certainly this professionalized uh, environment has, has created more job opportunities, which of course in turn has, has, uh, has meant there's a lot more competent people working with players for longer and from a younger age. That would be, be the first one. Uh, um, I would also say that the Norwegian Football Federation uh, introduced something they call Lonslag Schooler, which is basically a, a very detailed football educational program. Uh, within this, you've got a clear philosophy and DNA 
on the types of principle of play they want to uh, teach the players. Uh, they got position-specific requirements and a very detailed methodology of how to work with the players. Now, this is implemented at district level, regional level, and at national level, uh, which has helped uh, develop and kind of identify and, and, and nurture the, the future national team players from under 15 all the way up. Uh, something that was introduced in 2019 was also something that is called an academic classification system. A little bit similar to what they got in England with the category one, two, three and four uh, academies. Um, now, this was introduced to, to really boost and take uh, player development at youth team level, a level up. Uh, it's basically a cooperation between the Norwegian Football Institute and the, the, the clubs in the top two divisions in Norway. Um, to basically uh, come up with specified criteria, uh, so so that you basically have a standardized uh, platform for uh, for the development work going on in uh, in the youth academies. Uh, this has meant that, of course, a lot of clubs uh, are, are, have uh, really stepped up the game, uh, and uh, it's commonplace now to have you know academy managers, to have a uh, senior player senior player development coaches, to have uh, individual player developers working with the different age groups, having physical coaches working with the individual groups. Uh, so basically, this has, uh, has really boosted the, the work going on already in Norwegian football. Uh, and of course, I think the final thing for me would be that Norwegian kids now have Norwegian role models. Um, whereas once upon a time, you know, Messi and Ronaldo were the world stars and you probably only had those type of shirts running around in Norway. Um, now, basically, Ada Hegeberg and Arling Braut Holland are world stars. So it, it kind of inspires Norwegian players to, to, to see that even if, even if you come from Norway, you can actually become a world star and make it at a, at a very good level. So I think a combination of those four things has, has, has really boosted uh, uh, the development work in Norway and, as you said, produced this kind of golden generation that there's a lot of expectation around. I think that's a great answer. And um, I think for the first time, maybe, I'm starting to actually see now a really, really much more clearer picture of, as to how and why this is happening. So I think it's, it's fan fantastic to hear from someone like yourself who's been in there and, and understands um, perhaps why th this is this is now occurring. And do you think Norway is almost ahead of the game now compared to the other Scandinavian nations? You know, is it really, even can like compared to Denmark, is it producing potentially better players? Uh, I mean, if, if you take football in Scandinavia as a general, um, you will probably place the Danish, uh, the Danish league and certainly the Danish national team uh, at a high level, um, yeah. Sweden have also got a reputation of uh, of, of uh, qualifying for the for tournaments, World Cups, or European Championships. Unfortunately, Norway uh, was unable to qualify. Uh, but uh, on an individual level, uh, certainly Norway has taken uh, enormous steps forward. You know, uh, like you said, you know, it's it's commonplace now to find their players in. In the top five leagues uh, across Europe, really, you know, uh, and not just not just being part of the squad, but actually playing regularly and actually dominating the world stage. Uh, if I was to compare, for example, uh, the leagues, um, I mean, you, you got the big uh, clubs in Norway, the likes of Rosenborg, the likes of Rosenborg, uh, Molde, for example, and even Budaglimt actually. Um, they they have no problems whatsoever competing in Denmark and Sweden, and they will be at the top there. 
what I might say is that maybe the Danish league in general might have more of a uh, wider quality, uh, but certainly the the, the top uh, the top teams and certainly the top players have uh, have taken a, a huge step forward. Yeah, we often get that sort of question as well. What's the best league, especially between Sweden and Norway? And uh, we, we often, I think, the way I see it is that the, the top sort of four or five in Norway uh, are very strong, and perhaps sometimes yes. a bit of a gulf to the rest of the division, uh, sending the, the the teams in the sort of bottom five or six. Whereas somewhere like Sweden, it's probably more competitive division. The Alsvenskan across the board, um, but uh, I, I mean, I'm maybe a little bit biased because I'm more Norway um, sort of biased towards that. I always think Norway maybe slightly edges Sweden, but it's a very uh, interesting sort of uh, opinions and debate. Ultimately, there's not a lot between the two leagues at the moment, I don't think. But if if Norway keeps producing these sort of young talents and manages to actually keep them in the league for a couple of years. Maybe the elite area could uh, sort of slightly go ahead of our Svenskan. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, of course. Also, something that's happened this year. What I've noticed is that the the kind of the recruitment strategy of clubs, due due to of course the the pandemic, uh, has been more focused towards the Norwegian players. So we we we're now seeing there's a lot more Norwegian players being recruited by the by, by the top uh, teams. And of course, that that has to be good both both for the national league, but also for the national game. Uh, so that also, I think, will help uh, with uh, with producing a stronger league and also stronger national team in the future. Yes, and you, you talked about recruitment there and scouting. And do you think that's changed as well in the last sort of 10, 15 years? And I know each club has different ways of doing it. Um, do you think the certain out certain places you've been are more professional than others in dealing with the scouting and recruitment? Um, I'll probably say that recruitment and scouting is the biggest difference, if I was to say, between certainly between England and Norway. Um, there's also a few differences between Norway, Sweden and uh, Denmark. Um, I mean, it, it's not commonplace in Norway to have, for example, a, a chief scout or a head recruitment, something that's commonplace, certainly in uh, in, uh, in England and also in most clubs in, uh, in Denmark. Um, here it kind of varies from club to club. Um, most clubs have a sporting director or a director of football, should we call it, uh, and he's kind of responsible for coordinating the recruitment process. Uh, but also in some clubs, the manager has a very more hands-on approach to scouting. Um, and, with, and most clubs, I guess, would use a, a contact network. Uh, but there's not very, there's, there's not, so we say, uh, individual department or specialized departments that are responsible solely for the scouting and recruitment. Um, that those kind of uh, duties get tend to be distributed within the club. Um, there's there's very few clubs in Norway that have, for example, a full time scout. Right. Uh, um, but of course, there are examples of, of clubs that have done very well. I mean, for example, Shashbu Lotta um, and Budaglimt. You know, they're clubs that, for example. Krepindiata that went from Salzburg Nulotta to Club Brugge in Monaco. Uh, Philip Zinkenagel that went from Budelim to Watford. So it doesn't mean that they they are not able to to find players, develop them, and then sell them on. Uh, but certainly the structure and maybe the resources used is a little bit different uh, in that respect. Uh, of course, and it also depends on shall we say, what your strategic plan is. I mean, everything is relevant. Uh, I mean, you got, for example, clubs like Christian Sund. Uh, they got promoted in 2016. 
uh, and they've been able to cement their place in, in, in the top league in Norway uh, by having a good, good recruitment process, whereby they, they are very good at finding players from the, maybe the Norwegian lower leagues, develop them into good players in the, in the top level. Uh, but if I was to certainly choose or, or, or indicate one of the clubs that I've been involved with that maybe has used uh, more resources into scouting, then I think I'll have to go with Rosenberg, really. You know, they certainly had a, uh, probably the most professional structure in terms of uh, recruitment and scouting. Do you think now in this era of statistics and, and things like that, video analysis, that the scouting approach might change in Norway regarding that? Uh, I think it has already begun to change a little bit. I mean, uh, in the bigger leagues, it's commonplace that they have, uh, they have statistical models, they employ uh, uh, technical scouts, video scouts, uh, analysts, uh, because of course, you know, with, with, with technology, making such progress it has facilitated scouting and player identification uh, and that of course is used maybe even more nowadays that there's a lot of travel restrictions um, I know there are clubs that use uh, statistics and, uh, and analysis on that front uh, certainly in terms of filtering the player pool so that you can, you can come forward to about maybe four or five targets for each position and then you can maybe start to go in more depth in terms of doing live analysis when it's possible, doing video analysis, uh, getting to know the player from a uh, from an individual perspective, from the character. Um, so I think a lot of clubs have begun and are using uh, data certainly to filter and come forward to a uh, a, a, a narrower list of players that they can really go in more depth. Just going back to the the, the youth sort of players and the, and the great talents that have been coming through. Who who would you say you personally? Who's the sort of the best two or three players you've ever coached under the age of twenty? Um, wow, that's that's a uh, that is a bit of a tough question, um, <laughs> yeah. but a good question, of course. Um, I mean. The first thing I must say is that uh, there's two things. One, I, I, I think I've been lucky to have worked with so many good players and uh, that have challenged me and I hope I've challenged them. The other thing also is that uh, I don't believe that one single coach can take credit for developing one player. Or I think us coaches uh, come along in the player's development pathway and we try and affect them and... Uh, influence them as best as possible and of course the players along with their support support network do all the hard work uh, so that's important for me to say um, I'm not sure if I can give you a definite top three but I can certainly name some names that yeah, uh, that'd be great, yeah. that, that have certainly given me uh, certainly a lot of pleasure along the, along the years I mean uh, you got Hover Nilsson who at the moment uh, is playing in Bundesliga 2 he uh, he was a, a player that uh, I've saw develop from the age of 14. He went on to uh, make his debut for Vorenga's first team. He then, when uh, he was sold to Red Bull Salzburg, and then was moved on to the uh, Bundesliga and Bundesliga Two. I think he's played for Eintracht Frankfurt, uh, amongst other clubs. Um, Stefan Strandberg, a, uh, a player who at the moment is playing in Russia with Ural, I think. 
he uh, an amazing uh, character, uh, a player that uh, bit of a late developer, shall we say, uh, a player that uh, certainly things didn't come easy to, to him. He had to work hard. Uh, he was actually written off by some, but uh, one of the uh, clubs that he went on loan for uh, in the Bundesliga many many moons ago. Uh, he worked hard, uh, good defender. He's actually back in the national team now. Uh, he played for Vordinger's first team. He played for Rosenborg. Uh, he went to Hannover 96. He also went to uh, Krasnodar, for example. Um, I briefly uh, had the pleasure of uh, working a little bit with Joshua King, uh, who now is at Everton. Uh, now, Joshua, of course, left Norway at an early age. Uh, I think he went to Manchester United on his, when he was 6, 17, I think. Uh, so he wasn't with us a long time, but I, I remember Joshua when he was playing for a little club in, in Oslo called Rumsos, which is, is, is a small club run by a, a lot of parents that help out. Uh, but it, it had an amazing talent pool. You know, those players had an amazing uh, spirit and a, a passion for football. And, and, and he, was, he was certainly the, uh, um, the pick of the bunch. Uh, in that respect, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a player that, fr from an early age, you, you almost knew and 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 saw that he was going to make it in in the professional game. Uh, I remember once watching a, we had a thing called the Nike Premier Cup in, uh, in in Norway, where the best teams under 15 met together, played like a national tournament, and then the winners of that would then go represent Norway in the European qualifying rounds. Uh, and at the time, Joshua was playing for Rumsos, um, and he, uh, I think his team got knocked out in the semi-final. Uh, and I watched the final up on the uh, on the gantry, and, and he was sat there watching it, and had a quick little quick chat. And I said to him, "Are you disappointed?" And he goes, "Yeah, a little bit, but don't worry, I'll be back next year to win the tournament with Voringer, because he was playing a year above." Uh, and true, uh, true to form, he, uh, he signed for Wardinger the year after, and he came back, took part in the tournament with Wardinger, and totally dominated the tournament. And Wardinger won the tournament, and then went on to represent Norway. I think it was in Holland. Uh, so he had this mindset and this ability that you know made him stand out from mm. from an early age. Uh, you've also got Gias Zaid, uh, a fantastic technical player. Um, he. He, again, a late developer, quite uh, maybe slight in physique, developed after a while, but great ball control, great ability on the ball. Uh, he he went on to play for Vordinger's first team, and then he went on to uh, play for, I think he's at Nicosia and also played at Panathinaikos. Um, so there's, there's certainly some of the players that stand out. You've, you know, you've also got players at Rosenborg. Um, it's, it's, it's great to see an Alexander Serlot, who, uh, who may not have got many chances at Rosenborg, but went on to uh, Budaglimt, did really well there. Then, of course, went on to, uh, to, uh, to Turkey, a little stint at Crystal Palace, and now he's, of course, playing in the Bundesliga with RB Leipzig. Um, so that's some yeah, of the players. Great, a really good selection there. And if we just if we think about sort of three major types of attributes of a young player or any player, uh, physical, mental, and technical, when when these youngsters are growing up, what's the most in what's the most important thing you look at really? Because you know, do you need someone that's obviously naturally technically gifted? You got the physical side, which is probably they've got less control over because everyone's body sort of develops at different times, and then they've got the mental aspect. Do you think the mental aspect is 
the most important thing? Has the as the as the player got to really want it? I think it's certainly important that we begin to look at players not from bottom up, but from up down. Uh, and what that I mean, you know, you, you look at the head first. You know, you look at the head in terms of mentality, uh, uh, type of character. Um, they don't always have to be the best players. There's plenty of stories, not just in Norway, but around the world where players might not have been the best in the year, didn't quite make it at the beginning, but they've, they've, they've battled on and they've basically come through. I mean, the keeper at Chelsea, Mendy, you know, seven years ago, he was out of a job. And now he's going to play in the Champions League final. So I think those type of stories are really, really important to... Uh, to put forward um so i think certainly uh, from a from start of the head up and, and go down you know mentality uh, type of character are, are they coachable do they take learning in then you move down you know have they got a passion for the game have they got you know do, do they love the game you know do, do, do they train do they go to training if you're training outside and there's maybe only one or two that turn up to training but are they there anyway uh, that's important and then of course you come down to the uh, to the feet the legs you know uh, are, they, are, are they good movers? Uh, uh, can they handle the ball properly? You know uh, that type of thing. But um, certainly, if there's one thing that I have, there's two things I've certainly learned over the years. Number one is that bad recruitment always catches up with you. That is a definite. Mm. And the other thing also is that start looking at players from the head down. Um, if they got the head, if they got the brain. The body catches up with them as long as there's a certainly a, a level of, of uh, genetics in place and uh, certainly the technical ability and if they are coachable and they want to learn you can certainly teach that yeah we that's exactly what tony Ordina said when we interviewed him two or three years ago on this podcast it's all about the head all about the uh, the the drive and mentality of, of the youngsters and he's always willing to give players a chance who basically really try hard and um, I think there's uh, definitely a case in that isn't there absolutely uh, I mean again I know Tony he's working at Lidlstrom now uh, really really good guy very very professional and very good at his job uh, but he's absolutely right you know um, if you're willing to put the hard work if you're determined and you and you want to learn you're coachable um, then you know you, you you will get your chance. There'll be people that will uh, will give you a chance, uh, and especially now that there's a, there's a maybe a bit more emphasis in developing young players. That's certainly a trend across Europe. You know, as it looks like the the, the average age of squad is going down. Some clubs are preferring younger players, more dynamic players uh, that can that can give you a more an ag more aggressive playing style, shall we call it. Uh, so I certainly think that that is the case. I mean, Red, uh, Red Bull, their academy is, is is famed for that. You know, in terms of looking at the type of uh, looking at the type of person you are, looking at the individual before you look at the player. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to have a little break now. Um, join us after the interval, where we're going to talk tactics. We're going to talk about managers. We're going to talk about Andrea Alberto, the coach, as well. So stick around with us. We'll be back very soon. Welcome back to the Nordic Football Podcast. I'm Steve Wiss, and on this episode, I'm joined by Andrea Alberto, a uh, fantastic coach up there in Scandinavia. Andrea, are you enjoying yourself so far on the Nordic Football Podcast? 
Absolutely. It's it's uh, once again. I must thank you for 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 having me, and it's 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 a great pleasure to uh, to talk football. It's it's uh, it's the best subject in the world. Absolutely right. Yeah, I'm enjoying having you here as well. So uh, yeah, we're going to talk tactics now in this uh, second half of the episode, and uh, we recently did a um, an episode on the rise of the sort of the three at the back systems in Sweden. Um, if you want to check back, it is on our YouTube channel. It's particularly a good place to watch it, and. Um, you know, half of the Alsvenskan now is uh, certainly at least three at the back, three four three, three five two. It's a little bit different in Norway. There's uh, not so many teams uh, doing that. Um, but uh, you have been involved in a club, certainly Arlesund recently, and I think probably a few others as well, um, where the the three at the back has been employed. And um, <clears throat> obviously, it's quite easy for a lot of sort of pundits like myself, Jonathan, whoever, to actually talk about the tactical side of the game. But ultimately, it is you guys, the coaches and the managers, you've got to coach it. You have got to coach it to the players and, and everything like that. And how much of a challenge is it to coach three at the back as opposed to a flat back four? Um, you're absolutely correct. I've been involved in teams that have played three at the back. Uh, the first time it was with Matt Dempsey at FCO Helgeson when we played 3-5-2. Um, the reason why Matt Dempsey introduced that Helgeson, it was because he felt he had the personnel to play that system. Um, and it actually worked uh, to good effect. Uh, we, we had a, a great start to the 2016 season and uh, we surprised a lot of teams. We actually had Will Trust Ekong playing as the middle centre-back who's now playing for Watford and just got promoted to the Premier League. So when you got players like him playing for you, it makes it a little bit easier. Uh, <laughs> I think also, uh, then of course, most recently, I was in, involved with Lars Bohinen, um, who has played uh, a lot of uh, three at the back in Norway. Um, we uh, we played that at Olesen. Uh, we had... Lot of success in the Ubersliga, which will be the the league below uh, the top league in Norway. Um, we just missed out on promotion in 2018, lost in the playoff final against Starbeck. Uh, but actually, in 2019, we actually got promoted. We got the record number of points in that league, and we we won all 15 home games uh, in that season there. But then we came up to the uh, Elite Serie, uh, which is the top division in Norway. And things didn't go quite as well. Uh, but it has to be said that at the end of the day, it's all about the players. Uh, it's not so much the system. Yeah. So uh, where there are, of course, some uh, problems and comparisons between, let's say, uh, Ubusliga and Elite Serie. Uh, for example, some of the things that we noticed uh, was that playing um, with uh, three at the back or five at the back, um, in the Ubusliga, uh, you could almost wait to get the ball back uh, and the ball came back to you. Uh, whereas in the Elite Serie, sometimes when you were five at the back, you tended to stay in the back five a lot longer due to the quality of the players. And you had to almost go hunt the ball more often than just lying there and waiting for mistakes. Mistakes didn't quite happen as often. Um, but also, I also have to admit that um, the team that got promoted with uh, in Olsen in 2019 was a different team to 2020 that played the Elite Serie. Uh, I'm pretty much convinced that if we'd have kept the same team and got promoted, we would have had better success with playing three at the back. 
we would have definitely had some of the uh, issues that we encountered, but I think we would have had a, a better success with it, both because the teams would have been used to it, the system, the, uh, the principles of play, the, the dynamics in the team, and also because the, the, the individual quality of the players uh, was probably uh, a little better in 219 than 220. Um, that's what I would say. It's interesting that you mentioned Mark Dempsey there. Uh, he basically comes into the club and he, he realises he's got the personnel to play the system. Do you think it is... I mean, you say it's always about the players there. So you, you couldn't just say you walked into a... If you became manager of a club tomorrow, I don't know, let's just give the example of, say, Starbeck. Um, you know, you would actually assess the players first. Even if you were someone who was obsessed about playing three at the back, you would look at the players first and decide whether you could do that system. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I mean Starbeck actually haven't got many defenders, so I don't think three at the back at the moment might do them. Although they've just got uh, Simon Bambeck from Trumso uh, at the moment. Um, you would have to look at the players. I mean, uh, I, I believe football is moving away from formation and systems. Um, yes, you have a starting lineup, you have a base formation you work from. Some coaches have a preferred formation, of course, yes. Uh, but I think systems and formations are very static in nature. Uh, I think football is more dynamic. Um, I, I do believe that in the future you've got to move away from uh, formations and think more in, in terms of preferred shapes and structures with and without the ball uh, and also depending where you are on the pitch uh, systems are important for maximizing your player skill set like you said mark dempsey came in he saw that we could do well with three at the back so you set it up uh, but I, th I think it's a lot more important to uh, to focus on uh, your the habits of the players, the tactics, your principles of play. How I know how you want to play the game. It's more important than formation. Um, I have to agree with Jesse Marsh. I read an article and he actually came out with the following. He said that if you understand the habits, the principle, and the tactics, you can be flexible in your formation. Uh, now, of course, it's, you can't change from week to week and so on. Uh, and of course, coaches like him do work with the with elite players to may take things in quicker uh, but i do believe that uh, you know in you, you're seeing more regularly now that teams tend to have a, a certain structural shape when they attack and a certain structural shape when they defend um, and of course you know you can talk about man city that a lot of times defend the press high uh, 442424 or the light in the low block 442 and look to build pressure up uh, but offensively, they have a completely different structure and shape, you know, uh, often creating uh, overloads on the ball side to isolate on the opposite side, for example. Now, I know people are going to say, yeah, but Guardiola's got the best players in the world. But I think whatever happens at the top does filter down in the uh, system. So, for example, now uh, we're seeing Ulshisa, who play in the Ubersliga, who are going to try something similar, defending a 4-4-2. Uh, high or low, but when they attack, they're looking to get uh, three three players in the first line of uh, pressure uh, against the first line of pressure. One uh, one one single pivot, uh, two wing backs, shall we call them? Three players in the hole and one up front. Now, is that a formation or is that a certain shape you want to use to uh, attack in the in the spaces you want and also to utilize the the players you have at your disposal? Um, so I, I do believe that uh, I think the modern game is certainly characterized by flexible tactics, dynamic systems, systems that often change 
from game to game or in the game, and also semi-positions. I mean, there's been talk about the, the false nine, that's one thing, but the role of the fullback has changed now. Uh, and you also see a lot more asymmetric structures. So it might be that on the right side, you're attacking a certain way, but on the left side, you're attacking a different way. Uh, again, I watched Woringer against Rosenberg at the weekend. 1-1, uh, uh, it ended up. Uh, and when Usama Sahuri played as a as, as a left interloper, which would be a box-to-box -box midfielder in a in a 4-3-3, he, he wandered a lot. He, he had a bit of a free role. So he, when the ball was on the right side, he often wandered to the right side and and created an overload on the right side uh, so that they could release Aaron Dunham or the or, or the, the fullback. But when the ball was on the left side, then the right-sided box-to-box midfielder he stayed more on his side looking to get in the box. Um, so I believe uh, football is, 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 go is going down that, that road, definitely. Yeah, and do you think the players themselves have got to be kind of on board with your ideas, though? Because, um, for example, say you moved to a club that was normally 4-3-3. Say, say Budaglimp suddenly hired myself, Steve Wiss, as manager, and I went up there and I said, right, we're, play we're doing 3-5-2. And I brought a load of coaches in. I uh, said, so I brought you in as a coach. And I said, right, I need you to train these players to get used to this system. How, how difficult would that be, do you think, to, to get certain players who are used to playing one way to suddenly playing another one? I mean, it depends on the player, I guess, won't it? But in general, what do you think? I certainly would. I think you would have a massive problem up in Buda Glimt. <laughs> I'd, I'd be surprised if you get through to the uh, the recruitment process for the job. <laughs> I used to say no, but I and I totally understand what you mean. Um, uh, I also have to I also have to say that in in, in Norway there's, there's a lot of focus on formations. Uh, it's starting to shift a little bit. There's a lot more talk of principles, game models, um, how you attack and how you defend different dif different use of space. But there's a there's a there's a fixation on formations. Uh, whereas maybe in Denmark and Sweden it's it, 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 there's a there's not a, such a fixed uh, obsession with formations, you know, like, like like your your podcast, which I really enjoyed about the back three in Sweden. Teams there vary a lot more. I also see that in Denmark, some teams might change from game to game. Uh, of course, you need to have the players that understand that and are able to um, reproduce it on the pitch. But again, I think if, if, if you start talking about how you want to play the game and talk about the, your principles of play instead of going straight in formations, then I, I think then it's 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 a lot easier to be more flexible or have a flexible approach, both in terms of tactics, but also in terms of game plans uh, and, and in-game management. Um, with regards going in and changing a, a, a total structure, I, I think as a coach, as a manager, you've got to start with a why. I think that's essential. I think uh, mm -hmm. I think uh, certainly one thing that we are noticing now, uh, not just in football, but also in society as general, is that people, the, the new generations coming through, I'm not sure if I'd say they're more intelligent, but certainly they have more knowledge. There's more knowledge available to them. Anyone can go on the internet now and find out how Liverpool press 453. You can download whatever you want, and then you have knowledge of that. Uh, this What this means is that you might get questions more. Uh, what, what this also means is that people are more aware of what's going on, so they want to know why. Well, why are we pressing like this? Why are we doing this? Uh, so I think the why is very important. Um, yeah, I think you also need to engage the players and empower the players. Uh, I think if you empower the play, players and give them involvement, there's a bigger buy-in. 
from the start. I think if you do that, I think players more naturally go more into themselves rather than just look at the coach and kind of point the finger that way and say, well, what are we doing now? I think player engagement is something that it's 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 important. It's something also that players are, are starting to uh, to expect. Uh, I see that the, uh, the the new generation of players coming through, everyone born 2000, they need the millennials. They um, they uh, they want things explained. They want to be heard. They want to think explained. Uh, they use the technology, which of course can help you in the way you deliver your your approach and your and your buying to the group. Uh, and I think also it's important that instead of starting off at the formation level, you start off, okay, we want to play in this way because this, this, I believe in it, and go in principles of play. Principles of play that they can recognize every day on the training pitch so that they they occur in exercises, whether it's boxes, whether it's how you defend the box, whether it's a positional game with or without a transition so that they can connect that to the game as a connection to the game. Uh, and then, of course, you need to choose the uh, formation uh, based on the players you have. Um, and you also need to have the people involved. So like you said, you, are, you either bring people with you that are loyal to you and that they, they, they support you, but you also need to make sure that the club understands why you're doing things. So again, that, that kind of involvement in a, a different level. So they understand and support you if things go bad. Uh, and the biggest thing, of course, is, is uh, results. If you win games, then you can play whatever formations you want. Uh, I remember again in 2016, uh, me and Mark Dempsey were first game of the season. It was against Sarsborg uh, 08 away. Uh, a difficult ground for most teams at the time. And I do believe that Helgeson hadn't won an opening game in the league either ever or for a very, very long time. So, of course, we go down there, uh, tight game. Uh, but we, we win 1-0. Now, of course, belief goes through the roof. You know, One thing is confidence, of course. But then all of a, all of a sudden, players believe in what you do. Players get the buy-in. It's off you go all the way. Uh, and of course, the next game, I think we played all of a sudden at home 1-3-1. One, one. So you kind of build momentum, really. So all of a sudden, the formation is not longer an issue. Uh, but whilst we're on the subject of formations, um, during the season in 2016, uh, Matt Dempsey left Hamilton. Uh, I took charge uh, of the team uh, as, a, as a head coach for the remainder of the season. Uh, we carried on the 3-5-2 formation. Uh, I think in my first game, we beat Viking 4-1. Uh, actually, Ian Birchner was the assistant coach on that day. A bit of a fortunate game. I think Viking had chances to certainly increase their lead uh, at the time. But we won 4-1. We played 3-5-2. But as the season went on, uh, I changed the system to 4 uh, with the same players we had. Uh, and the reason being was a mixture of, one, uh, player availability in terms of uh, the players uh, that were available for the rest of the season. And also a little slight preferences in terms of how to uh, how to set up the team. Why do you think, because I think mostly in Norway you see a lot of sides employing 4-3-3 formation or 4-4-2 even. I can't think of many sides apart from Sarsborg under Mickey Stara. At the moment we've got Gota Hellstrup at Tromsø who's doing 3-5-2. 
Um, and sometimes Vegar Hansen will go three at the back or five at the back, but almost it feels like a desperation down there at Mjöndalen, um, rather than because of what, what he wants. Why do you think there's a reluctance for teams to to go with a three-man defence in, in Norway? Is it frowned upon a bit? Um, it's certainly not a familiar or a formation. It's certainly not a formation that has had success in Norway. Uh, we have to remember that Norway is it's relatively uh, it has a relatively young football history and culture, let's say, compared to England. Uh, most of the way that people have grown up to, to think football, see football, understand football, comes really from uh, from two coaches and two teams. The national team under Egil uh, Dilo Olsen, that uh, had great success playing 4-5-1 um, and qualifying for, for the World Cup, beating teams like Brazil and Italy along the way and England, which was unheard of previously. Uh, and of course, Rosenborg, uh, that had great success both at home and in the Champions League uh, under Nilsson Eggen, uh, where they played a, a, an offensive brand of football in uh, his preferred 4-3-3 setup. So, of course, when, when, when you see those teams have success, it, it's, it's natural that uh, coaches and, uh, and players associate themselves with that. Uh, and of course, they, uh, they grew up uh, liking it and thinking like that. So, there's certainly an affiliation with... Uh, say 4 v 3 uh, and certainly not a three at the back. Um, it'll be interesting to see this year is, say, for example, Trumse, if they decide to keep playing three at the back and they, 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 they survive. Uh, there's, there's certainly uh, examples of, uh, of it working. Like I said, you know, Sarsborg have done it in Elite Serie and, uh, and Dems introduced it at Haugesund and, and had success at the beginning as well. Um, so I think it can work. Like I said before, it's, it's certainly down to the players. Uh, but again, whilst we're talking about formations, it's important to mention that uh, it's, 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 it's players and it's systems. Uh, I, I, it's, 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 it's very commonplace now that, yeah, you play with about four, but if you want to, uh, if you're defending a lead, for example, then you make about five. Mm. You bring extra defender. Uh, if, for example, um, you're, you're playing against a team that is, is, is good at circulating the ball, create lots of overloads, but have you know threats in behind, playing against Moldo, for example, uh, then you might want to uh, start with a back four, but create what I call a false five, when either a midfielder drops in the in the, in the back four to to cope with the uh, the extra width in uh, in defence. Um, so, you know, Borussia Dortmund, for example, they, they, they were doing that when they played against Man City, uh, where I think it was um, Emre Chan dropped in between the centre-backs to make a, a temporary five to cope with the, the, the constant width, the constant runs and the constant support that Man City gave them. And again, that, that kind of fits into my, my, my point about, yeah, you have a base formation that you work from, but it's, it's more about your shape and your, your, your adaptable structures, whether you have the ball or you don't have the ball and in what situation of the game you are, whether you're attacking, defending, you're in power play, you're in the last third, you're, you're building up against high pressure, low pressure, those kind of things. I like that term, false five. Would that basically be a role of like a halfback sort of uh, player who would drop back in from sort of defensive midfield sometimes? Uh, yeah, it can be. I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, it's it's very common now to see, it, for example, like uh, the, uh, the, the 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 midfielder, the the single pivot, one of the pivots, drop between the centre backs who split to make a what I call a false three, 
they don't play with a back three. They, they kind of make a false three when they're building out from the back to uh, to to either play against two strikers to give them a numerical uh, advantage in the, against the first line of pressure, or it's because they want to maybe move the uh, the, the, the fullbacks higher up and get the wide men to come in the pockets between the lines. So that can happen. Uh, but certainly uh, a midfielder would might, might drop between the centre-backs or might drop at the side of the centre-back. Uh, this also can go in line with that of the midfielders are the better ball players, so they should be on the ball a lot more often. Uh, so certainly, you know, we it's commonplace where you see that. I wouldn't say that teams play three at the back when they attack or defend, but certainly create a structure uh, when they have, like I said, I call it a false three uh, against the uh, first line of pressure so that they can facilitate taking the ball forward and creating overloads higher up the pitch. That's very interesting stuff. And now let's just move on to talk about sort of Andrea Laberto, the, the coach and the manager. And uh, you have been, you've had a lot of different positions. You've also, like you said, you were sort of interim caretaker manager at Augustin uh, back in 2016. According to transfer, Mark, you in charge for 11 games, average 1.45 points per game. Pretty good average uh, there. Maybe they should have kept you on, Andrea, I don't know. But um, And then you also were head coach of Frederickstadt for a season in 2017. And I'm sure we could, hey, we could have a 10-hour podcast talking about Frederickstadt, I'm sure, um, the way that club goes go, uh, goes on. Um, now, what do you think, then? Do you prefer being the boss or are you sort of more preferred to be sort of in an assistant role? Uh, like, like you mentioned before, I have had uh, many different roles uh, along my journey, shall we call it. Uh, and I, I actually believe that the diversity in, in, in the position has, has given me a, an in-depth understanding of player development, how people learn, uh, certainly pre- prepares me for the younger generation coming through to the first team level. Uh, I do believe that. Uh, the head coach of the future needs to really think about how they communicate and how they uh, interact and how they uh, they lead a new generation, which seems to be a little bit more vulnerable and a little bit uh, used to less direct communication and less verbal communication, for example. Uh, so I think the diversity in the role has certainly uh, given me in-depth knowledge and, and also prepared me really for uh, for the later roles as head coach and assistant coach. Um, my recent job was as assistant coach after having been at Fredrikstad, like you mentioned. Uh, that was perfect timing. Uh, it allowed me to work with Lars Bohinen, which I really, really enjoyed. Uh, a lot of respect for him as a person and as a, as a manager, as a coach. Uh, and it allowed me really to get into the football. Uh, the, the, the football. Uh, sometimes as a manager, you, you might get distracted from the, from the actual football because you, just, you, you are the leader of the, of the club. You are the focal point of the club. And you, can't, you might get drawing different di- different uh, directions whereas an assistant coach you might have more focus on the football how to develop the tactics how to develop the training session your methodology uh, your game models that that was great timing um what the future holds I- i'm not sure uh, I'll, I'll certainly be a a passionate student of the game i'll certainly uh, uh, be that um but we'll see what sort of other managers and coaches do you think you take inspiration from? I mean, it could be someone you've worked with or, or underneath, or it could be just someone like, I don't know, Pep Guardiola, for example. Who would you say? Um, you're full of great questions. Um, I, I, I mean, again, lucky to work with some great players and some, some, some good football people that I've, 
I've had the pleasure of learning from. Um, if I was, I, I could probably name three people that really stand out in terms of uh, the ones I work with. Now, of course, everyone you work with at this level has got great football knowledge. But for example, Lars Bohinen, who, who played in the Premier League with Nottingham Forest, Blackburn Rovers, and Derby County, uh, he, he was extremely good at creating a high-performance culture. It was really good at creating that group dynamics uh, in the changing room, out on the pitch, you know, uh, the, getting the players involved in, and, get, and empowering them to take con uh, control and responsibility of, uh, of the group. Kore um, Ingebrigtsen, that worked at uh, Rosenborg, uh, also used to play for Man City, I believe. Uh, he's, he had great man management. Great man management in terms of how he handles some, some big names at the time at Rosenborg, you know. Uh, yeah. You have to remember that um, has some good players, and he, you know his manner management was very good. He got he got a lot. He got the max out of players, and individuals as well. Uh, I'll also have to mention maybe Martin Andreessen. Uh, he is the ex-Norwegian national captain. Um, he had an incredible winning mentality, uh, and he also had an ability to contextualize ideas. You know, he could. He, he he wasn't afraid to uh, to to try something new, to see new ideas, but then bring it to the context you're at, you know, not just copy, but contextualize it to your context and and, and, and really go for it. Uh, so that, that that was really inspiring. Uh, from a distance, uh, I probably have to maybe name, I quite like Jesse Marsh, the uh, the Red Bull Salzburg manager. High, highly rated, isn't he, Marsh? Uh, I just think the way he is, he's, uh, when you see him do interviews, when you see him, his behavior with the players on the touchline, he's... Um, I, I'm not sure it's a motivator. I think mo I'm not sure if motivation is the right word. Uh, you could almost do a podcast just on is motivation the right word, but it certainly inspires people. He's got, you know, he creates a mindset in his group of players that that they they they, they really believe in what he says. Um, I like the way that he defends on the front foot, uh, and I like the way he kind of like you know his, his ball orientation when defending. You know, commit players around the ball to win the ball. I really like that. Uh, of course, Marcelo Bielsa, uh, not only has he taken one of my former clubs, United, back to the Premier League, uh, but also the way, he's, uh, the, the way he sets up his team, is, is the positional rotations and the dynamic movements of the ball are, are great to watch. Uh, I think uh, certainly Pep Guardiola in terms of his position of play, but not just his position of play, it's also the way he, the way he comes up with, with, with ideas. And, and, the way he's uh, almost able to reinvent himself uh, in terms of, okay, the way he, 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 one thing is the false nine, yeah, people know that, but in the way he, he uses his players uh, in terms of, okay, Cancelo, may, maybe not the best fullback in terms of coming around the side and, and delivering those crosses, but certainly a great ball player, but moving him centrally, you know, you not only do you get numbers up in midfield or you control the centre of the pitch, but certainly you get a good ball player on the, on, on the ball. Certainly, that's that, that's certain, certainly something that I admire. You know, the, the way that you can look at your squad and stay true to your principles, your values, but maybe dispose the players differently, uh, no matter what the formation is. And you briefly mentioned the future and that, and your ambitions for the future. I mean, where do you sort of see yourself in five years' time? Do you see yourself as this sort of manager? Do you see yourself as this, you know, in a really sort of solid assistant role at a big club? I mean, are you open to working outside of Scandinavia again, or would you sort of prefer to stay in that region? Do you think? Um, definitely open to work either within Scandinavia or outside Scandinavia. Um, I would definitely recommend 
uh, going abroad to, to young coaches. Uh, one thing is that the, the life experience, the cultural experience, learning languages, uh, but also the, the, the football experience uh, certainly makes you more rounded and, and it, it gives you a certain a different perspective. Um, so I would recommend that. But certainly, you know, we're either working in Norway, in Scandinavia, also outside of Scandinavia, that would be uh, something that I would uh, definitely embrace. Um, again, m- maybe come out of your comfort zone uh, to try new things and, uh, and and develop yourself even further. Uh, in terms of my role, uh, at the moment I'm doing a lot of, I'm watching a lot of football, uh, doing a lot of reflecting, a lot of writing, summarizing what I've experienced and reflected, um, which is a, it's both a very demanding but a worthwhile task. Sometimes we don't make enough time to reflect on things. Um, but my, my new role, um, it'll either probably be either assistant or head coach. Uh, it's my career has kind of drifted towards that uh, that direction. And where can people find you? I don't think you're actually on Twitter, are you? But are you on? Are there any social handles that people can keep, or or some sort of blog or writing area? Uh, I must admit, uh, I am very competent when it comes to technology. Uh, I, uh, ha- having uh, had different roles in performance analysis, I can monitor my way through performance analysis software very easily. But when it comes to the uh, my uh, carbon footprint, as they call it, um, I'm not on Twitter, unfortunately. I, I don't write any blogs. I've thought about it, I must admit. Uh, I haven't done it yet, so at the moment, really, uh, the only place they can find me is either through phone, through email, or on LinkedIn. Interesting. So if you're kind of like a, a rare breed of bird these days, Andrea, where uh, we, you're not on the, the main social platforms, which kind of uh, I mean, it intrigues me, I must say, it intrigues me. I kind of uh, quite like that in a way. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been. Uh, I mean, I must admit, it's it's not necessarily a, a social standpoint that I'm making. <laughs> must understand it. It's something that I, I uh, maybe never prioritise. Uh, whereas now, like I said, I'm 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 deeper into it much more, and certainly my friends and families are telling me to go out there and embrace everything that's out there in the big wide world. Certainly, the the internet world. Uh, it's possible that I might make some appearances in the near future. <laughs> Well, as I say, it was, thank you very much for coming on the Nordic Football Podcast. That was Andrea Laberto. I'm sure we'll see you in a great role somewhere again very soon, and we wish you all the very best for the future. Thank you very much. And that is it for this particular episode. Thanks to Andrea again. Thanks to Jonathan. Hope you all enjoyed the episode. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at Nordic Footpod. Any questions at any time, feel free. You can find myself on Twitter at MeatmanSoccer. Um, my co-host Jonathan Fadugba at JF Football. So yeah, that brings this particular one to a close. We'll be hopefully back next week to discuss more about the events up in Norway and Sweden. Until then, take care, stay safe, and goodbye.